Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. My name is Adam Oberhausen. I'm the Vice President of Customer Solutions with Red Green Networks and I'm your host for today. Joining me today is software and data consultant and friend, Tom Kowalski. Say hi, Tom. Hello. And it is also my honor to introduce Lancelot Carlson of House Heal Pay, the first of his name, co-founder of the Payment Realms, Lord of Ruby Development, Warden of Artificial Intelligence, Sovereign of Entrepreneurial Ventures, and Ambassador to the Great Lakes Tech Leaders. Thanks for joining us, Lance. That intro was epic. Thank you. Yeah. You, you remember the intro you gave last time? You, you, <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> you didn't get the name of the podcast right. You didn't get the name of me or Tom right. It was it was rough. I'm not going to lie. You edited the yeah. whole thing out, right? Oh, no. Jalen, our producer, she just likes to keep it real. Like, there's no... <laughs> There's no, you know, it is what it is. Uh, so um, sorry, Tom. So we're continuing our, our talk on Agile, my series on Agile here. And, you know, our last episode, which was a month ago, we, we went over the history of Agile and, you know, learned some interesting things about, you know, the, the initial start of software development and, you know, how the diverging methodologies came to be. And so I wanted to kind of keep going down this Agile rabbit hole and I've got a little monologue I'll start out the episode with here, but then I actually want to hear, you know, Tom and Lance's, your, your kind of first experience with Agile. And so here we go with my, with my intro. So Agile, contrary to, to many beliefs, isn't about, you know, fostering a, a blind optimism or unrealistic expectations. It's set up in a way to confront the harsh realities of the project's progress and capabilities. Agile tries to extinguish the dangers of hopeful thinking that leads teams to assure stakeholders that everything's on track when in reality it is not. Agile helps deliver the bad news early enough for effective management intervention. So this is something I kind of paraphrase from Robert Martin, one of my mentors and heroes. And, you know, it certainly sounds quite negative. Like, you know, I, I thought Agile was about, you know, having fun and going fast and, you know, executing and and it is those things but i think as i've kind of gone down this rabbit hole of understanding the origins of of agile and what it really means it's it is about measuring your speed and capabilities and eliminating this illusion that if we just work harder this next iteration or if we just add three developers to the team you know it just it just keeps things grounded in reality so that you can report to your stakeholders the, the truth of what's actually happening with the project. So in this episode, we're going to focus on how Agile provides managers the tools to, to, to lead and steer projects effectively. The next episode, we're going to go into the next tier of Agile, which is like how you actually plan the specific work, how you actually execute on your iterations. Um, kind of getting further into the weeds. But for this one, it's kind of focusing on the management aspects of Agile. And so my brief history, 
of like when I learned Agile, it was probably like 2014. The SaaS company I was working for brought in a consultant. Um, we were pretty much doing a waterfall approach. He talked he talked to us about Scrum. We kind of had like an internal workshop to do a, a Scrum sprint. Uh, I remember buying like a tiny book about how to do Scrum. I was like, oh, this is this is easy little framework. It's cool. The company sent us to a like a three day offsite Agile Scrum training. After that, you you take a test to get Scrum certified, and you know it just felt like oh I know everything I need to know about Agile. But then now now here I am like you know almost ten years later like understanding the history and understanding you know some of these methodologies that I didn't really unpack. You know I wish I would have gone back in time and like dug into these things more. But that's kind of and so I feel like I I learned Agile. I was like yeah it's cool, and then I just kind of started using it and didn't really think much about all the different aspects and the Agile Manifesto and all these things. So I'll kick it over to maybe Lance about your first experience with Agile and, and how that went and what you, or feel free to just respond to what I just said in my, my opening monologue there. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact first time I heard about Agile. It's kind of been this evolution of like, you know, I was in startups and, um, you know, I'd be a, I'd, I'd been an avid hacker news reader and kind of absorbing all the, all the things that other tech companies were doing. And when I started my tech, tech company, I, I adopted agile because that's what everyone was doing. Um, I had worked on projects prior to that at startups that used, uh, agile and weekly iterations and stuff like that. And I had a really, really good experience going on site to a local company called uh, Menlo Innovations, and they have a really interesting process around using Agile. So I've had a lot of exposure in the beginning. Um, I definitely made a lot of mistakes in implementing Agile, in my opinion. Other people may think that the way that some, uh, you know, the way that other people are advocating to do Agile is is the way, and you have to do it that way. Mainly around like measuring velocity. I, I think that you that things can get a little precarious with that because the kind of work that is expected and planned to do week to week is always different. And so when you run into rabbit holes and you're trying to measure the velocity of teams, it's kind of like, you know, this qualitative analysis, this quantitative analysis is being favored over qualitative. And it can be, I think those, those are some of the bigger mistakes I made early on in integrating agile. Cause I would be like, as a manager, I wouldn't expect I, I I didn't take enough responsibility for the fact that I didn't scope the features and requirements enough and, mm-hmm. and think about all the rabbit holes enough and expected my dev team to hit this consistent velocity because of it. It's like my initial thoughts, but yeah. Good, yeah. Good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Tom, anything to add with your initial agile experience or the response to my monologue about this being you know, the harsh reality of truce that Agile is supposed to present? Yeah. So our experiences are similar since we were, you know, both working at the same place at the time that was introduced. And yeah, I, I agree with you. It was, it, you know, I got introduced to it through the implementation, right? Through the Scrum process, a an implementation of it, right? How are you supposed to implement these principles without actually going through and <clears throat> reading and kind of, you know, internalizing the you know original principles of agile 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I wish I would have yeah, focused on that more now that we're, you know, we're diving back into it. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, and looking at these principles, it's like sometimes I feel like Agile can get a bad rap. And that's because of usually more of the implementation, you know, whatever framework and how somebody's trying to implement it, uh, you know, in, into their process. And s- some are good, some are bad, some, you know, and when sometimes it's forced uh, different implementations, it could be bad. But if you look at the principles, right, and just read them. You can't disagree with any of them. It's all, you know, yes, this is what, you know, you should be doing in any project, right? It, it makes sense. You know, some of them, it's kind of like, okay, maybe it's all, you know, it, it, it might not work in some situations, but for the most part, it it works across the board. So yeah, that's just, uh, you know, when I think about it, because I, I hear, I mean, that's why people right now, right? The title of agile and process, right? Like it might leave a bad taste in somebody's mouth of how it was implemented bad, right? Of where they're working. So um, yeah, I'm I'm excited to to dive into uh, to some of these implementations and different uh, models that uh, people have used. And I I follow a lot of these agile people in on LinkedIn, and it it kind of feels like there's this trend to say oh the death of agile, but then reborn. Yeah. So everyone is sort of rebranding agile right now based on what we've learned about agile, which is kind of meta. Go to agile2.net or something. There's like agile 2.0 coming. It's like <laughs> Come on. What the what the cuss word? <laughs> okay, so the first uh kind of management tool I want to talk about is uh something that in the research I did is is this tool called the Iron Cross of of project management. I think it's been rebranded as the Iron Triangle of project management because of the negative connotation of associating the Iron Cross with Nazi Germany. Hmm. Um, but that's just speculation on my behalf. Hmm. But anyways, again, Robert Martin, you, you know, when he, when he talked about it, he used the iron cross. So I stuck with it. And the iron cross basically says that every software project is constrained by four key elements, quality, time, cost, and scope. And to be honest, I had heard of this, I think, and probably college or something, but I don't really ever remember it being introduced in my agile when I was practicing agile for the companies that worked for, maybe a project manager talked about some of these words or, and what's interesting is when they talk about it and I, I want to help, maybe you guys can help me unpack it is that the rule of thumb states, states that it's important to recognize that you can achieve excellence in only three of these areas at any given time. So I want to kind of explore that. Like, is that a fact? Is that a theory? Have you got, do you guys agree with that? I mean, to me, it makes sense just on paper, but I haven't like looked at a bunch of data to prove that that's correct or wrong. So I don't know. Have you guys heard of this Iron Cross, Iron Triangle? Have you ever used it? Any feedback on what I just said? Definitely have heard of it. Uh, I, 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 I've I heard of it more in the Triangle uh, instance, but this makes sense. I think in the Triangle version, they they usually have three on there and are and don't have the fourth. Which is weird. Quality's in the middle. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The three triangles are cost, yeah. time, and scope, and because quality, theoretically, quality is never a knob that you should yeah. turn down. You should never say, you know, oh well, we're just going to write bad code to get this done. Well, uh, then the wording is a little bit weird on that to say that or value. Heard, yeah, because like, it, I, more so, I think of it as like you can control time. Like I think of it as controlling things, like. You can control the time, you can control, you can say like you have some sort of iteration 
And so you've controlled time there. Like, this is when I expect something to happen. You're controlling scope by, you know, making sure that that scope can be implemented in that time period. And then, you know, cost. Well, you could do something where you've you've basically associated um, a cost with that time window. So I know like Menlo, for example, will charge their end customer some amount of money every iteration. And um, that's how they do their billing. Um, but that that's how they, you know, generate revenue. But at the same time, the cost is, you know, okay, two pair of programmers, for example, are working those two weeks. So that's mm -hmm. how you control your cost. Yeah. And I think the takeaway from the Iron Triangle, Iron Cross, is that as a, you know, proficient software manager, you should be thinking the, the about these attributes as dials that you can adjust, right? Are we able to move the timeline out? Do we need to move the timeline in? Can we, when in terms of costs, can we bring in more resources to help us with the project? What can we strip away or what, what can we add to make sure this, the feature set's complete? So I think it works well with the agile principles because it, you know, looking at the agile manifesto and collaboration and being forthright about the reality of the project, you have to make compromises and sacrifices. And the earlier you can communicate that, the better the outcome will be for all parties involved. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it right there. It's the communication is what it really helps with, right? Uh, and letting stakeholders understand. Uh, when you say like, oh, why can't this be better, right? It's like, well, okay, this is, well, these are the constraints that we're dealing with. Right. If it if it needs to be better, right? Like the quality is higher, right? Then we have to you know adjust the cost or the timing, and, and it gives that visual representation that that like people like to see, right? Like why can't we you know have it this way, or why does it cost us so much, or you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it helps communicate it. Yeah, I do think there is some risk in trying to think of it as something that's like infinitely or easily scalable quickly, though. Um, like a knob you can just dial up real fast and then suddenly everything else just like kind of falls into place. There's a book called The Mythical Man Month. It's pretty good. Um, talking about like you can't just throw nine developers in there and, and make one baby in a month is the interesting concept behind that. So Yeah, we'll actually get into that because, you know, adding additional developers is going to slow you down. So you're making, you have to make a bet that, you know, eventually the team's productivity will increase by adding but there's a there's a you're you're paying that you're making a bet that the that the curve of the degradation of efficiency will be outweighed by the by the new you know peak efficiency so okay so let's move on to something we you you touched on lance which is the velocity chart in agile and again you know we're going to talk about two charts one's the velocity chart uh, which kind of measures your team's week over week productivity and then the other chart is a, we're going to talk about a project burn down chart um, where you kind of look like track the, the progress of the entire project from when it started to when it end. And you can think of a burn down chart as just like, you know, you start with so many story points of work to be done. And as we progress through our iterations, eventually you're chipping away at all that work and trying to meet your, your, your time target. So um, starting with the velocity chart, you're just tracking the number of story points that the team's able to complete. So story points are kind of an abstract concept. You know, you think about them in terms of a unit of measure that represents the effort, complexity, and uncertainty involved in a task rather than an exact measurement of time. So, you know, each team kind of has their own definition of what a point is. But what's important is that 
if you're able to come up with a pointing methodology and track how many points that your team can get done, you have some reliable data as a manager to go off of, right? It's all about saying, okay, well, you know, last week we did 32 points. I shouldn't report to my stakeholders that we can do 58 points this week magically, right? You have to, it, it's to be treated as data to express the productivity of your team. And I'll let you guys kind of chime in. So go ahead. I want to, I want to jump in right there. Cause so that like just tracking points, right. And like work being done, it can, it doesn't really fit into agile or, you know, the, the, the principles and it's, it's kind of, you know, what company is kind of threw on there to, so they can monitor it. Cause if you look at the agile principles, it's like, Hey, this team is going to focus on delivering value and you know, self-organized, you know, let them, let them go and look at that value that is being produced. But, you know, having to peek inside is not part of agile. It's, it's, you know, letting them go. The point should just be for the team and and helping them kind of understand and helping them maybe scope out the work to get it more in that, you know, that smaller iteration. But yeah, that, but kind of what you said right there, like letting the stakeholders know, right? Like how many points we can get done, right? That's where it kind of breaks down right there of, you know, the, the implementation, I feel. Uh, especially on teams where the points are not necessarily, uh, you know, indicative of a unit that's like same. So in my team, you know, uh, one point is is maybe a week and then like three, I guess, I guess our points are based on weeks. So our unit is pretty is pretty standard, but sometimes they do exponential. So like, you know, one point might not actually mean uh, a unit that is comparable to two or three points, which is kind of interesting. And then, you know, recording points is also a lagging indicator. And it doesn't necessarily, and there's so much confusion that can be put into that number because, I mean, you may be able to measure something like, okay, uh, the team is going into the winter weeks and, you know, you know, after they've completed the work, you're going to be like, well, we didn't get through as much velocity because obviously Christmas or something like that. But mm-hmm. is that useful? And I'm not entirely sure. Whereas like, like Tom was saying, using it as something for the team where we can sort of with the developer and the product person talk about, okay, how long do we, how long do we think this will take? How big, how, what's the size? What's the scope of this? When we measure the scope that we think, and we can collaborate and use it as a unit on the team, as opposed to you know, and actually you can use that number with the stakeholders to say, look, this is what we think it, how big it is. Do you think we should work on this and let them decide? Okay. Okay. Definitely don't disagree. Like, yeah, I think it's, it is a good point, Tom, to say like this, these charts are not part of agile. Like it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a a derivative process to try and, you know, make agile more more visible to yeah. stakeholders or business people. So, oh, I thought of uh, so. What was cool is that uh, I forgot to mention that you know I like to tout Thirty Seven Signals Shape Up because they have some good ideas. But they instead of using um, measuring these iterations by points, they have what's called a hill chart. Have you heard of the hill chart? I don't know if we covered it in our episode on that, but uh, it doesn't kind of out. It's kind of interesting. It's just a hill. And you give the developer, they can they can move the the point on the hill, you know where mm-hmm. where they are progress wise, and 
you know, kind of, it kind of measures like, okay, this is the most amount of effort and work I've had to do is sort of at the peak of the hill. And now I'm like over that trough and coming down. So mm -hmm. it's, it's more mm -hmm. of like a, the developer kind of can communicate where they're at in a more qualitative way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about burn down charts a little bit. And again, this is like the project burn down chart. And, you know, I think what you see in a, in what you would see in a, in a, let's talk about, you know, an ideal scenario is you've got this velocity chart that has meaning and it allows you to predict your team's productivity. And then you've got the burn down chart, the project chart on the wall so that when anyone comes into a room, they could easily look at the two charts and be like, okay, this team can do this much work per week and the, and their, the burn down rate is this. And what you typically see is that the burn down rate is slower than the productivity of the team. And so the first question is like, well, why is the burn down chart, if the team's doing 45 points per week, why is the burn down chart not being reduced by 45 points per week? And the answer there is, you know, there's always new work being added because you're always discovering new work. Um, requirements are changing based on customer feedback or what you've sh shown to the customer. Um, estimations are inaccurate. We're, humans are notoriously terrible at estimating work. Um, so, you know, you, you end up with these two charts that kind of tell an interesting story that on one side, our team is, you know, maybe producing 40 points of work, but the burn down might only be showing, indicating half that. So, um, I think again, when I, when I studied the teachings of Robert Martin, he talked about the importance of having these two charts on the wall. Um, and you know. It just makes it, anyone can walk into a room and understand in less than a minute kind of where the, where, what the status of the project is and what the, what the potential completion date looks like based on looking at those two charts. I just wanted to say, like, I, I have been screwed. <laughs> I don't know if I can use that word. I've been, uh, by, by giving estimates, relying on the estimates that those kinds of metrics give you as a project manager. So I would caution, you know, pushing out the expectation to customers that you can deliver by this date be based on these indicators. Um, yeah, I would agree. I, I've always found it very difficult, especially in the leadership roles I was at in the work we were doing, because it, it felt like we we're always heading into the unknown, right? With, with cloud architecture and you know, refactoring complex systems. And it was, I just never really, I never had an experience where we where we actually tracked, we actually had a velocity chart that we trusted and a burn down chart that we trusted when we looked at it as an individual team and we weren't like, you know, promoting this outside of our team and tracking our, our burn down per iteration. I think there's some interesting things there and you can help the team kind of refine their methodologies, but yeah. Agreed. For me, it's the organization as a whole and, you know, the, the teams within it and how they're communicating. And I feel like these practices work good if your structure of, you know, how the teams and how they communicate is is already, you know, pretty well established. If you have, uh, if these teams have well well established goals that are presented to them, right? This is This is what needs to be accomplished, you know, accomplish it however you know you see fit and 
when that's not clearly defined and it's just kind of changing and it's just maybe like tasks given from another team or project manager, I feel like that's where it falls down, right? It has to, like all of these principles of, of agile, it really just fits within that that team that's working on it. And then when you try to bring it out and have like teams of teams and you, it, it kind of falls apart. I feel like you have to have that clear boundary between between the teams and what, you know, they're responsible for, you know, what, what they, what value they own for the customer, uh, whether it's an internal customer, you know, that they're, they're making these for, I feel like that has to be clearly established, right? When, when you hear these other ways of implementing it, I feel like it falls apart if you don't have that. So I just, yeah, yeah. whenever I think of these, it's like, uh, but that if you have a terrible culture and, you know, the, the teams don't communicate well, it doesn't matter how you, you implement this. So I had to throw that out there. I, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. It's, it's good insight, Tom. So I want to move on to iterations, the concept of iterations. You know, you, in my, I always thought of them as sprints. And I, I, I do think there's a negative connotation with that word, with scrum, always sprinting, never a cool down period like you have in shape up. Yeah, I'm... I kind of don't like the word sprint. I, I like iteration. And I think what I learned when researching this episode is that an iteration never fails, right? An iteration provides data. Of course, you want to get things done, right? The goal of an iteration is to get things done. But the actual goal of an iteration is, is to provide data about how much work we can get done. And that way you can use your iterations to, you know, put together that velocity chart we just talked about. And I know we had some debate about whether the velocity chart is even meaningful. But anyways, you know, that's kind of how the research for the show came out for me is that these iterations are, you know, you start out with iteration zero. That's when you're doing your initial exploration and designing. And then that really never ends. You know, you're kind of, you're always exploring and refactoring, redesigning the architecture. But you know, the, a goal of Agile is to get rid of that waterfall, you know, mentality of defining everything up front, but you still have to have some idea of what you're going to do. So that's iteration zero. And then you, you get into your iterations one and two. And, you know, if you're doing Agile and you have leadership buy-in, I think circling back to what you just said, Tom, about like, if you don't have leadership buy-in about what Agile is and how it functions, it's not going to work. But if you do, and you can provide feedback about how your iterations are going, and you, you essentially use yesterday's weather to report on tomorrow's forecast, right? So that you're not, you're not making some promise like, you know, oh, well, if we just work harder, well, what the hell do you mean? We were working as hard as we can. <laughs> oh, if we just add three more engineers, well, we could do that, but it's going to slow us down for three weeks, right? Like you have to, and again, it comes back to that communication and being honest, so... Um, my takeaway is that I prefer the word iteration. I like the idea of thinking an, iter an iteration doesn't fail or succeed. I think in scrum, it was like, when I learned scrum, it was like, no, you, you commit to the sprint and you have to get everything done and you have, and if everything doesn't get done, you work extra to get it done was kind of how it was like presented to me. And that, I don't know, that's just like a recipe for burnout. And, but if you treat you know, your, your team, like uh, grownups that are doing the best they can and you do these iterations and you see what your outputs are and you use those outputs to predict your future outputs. 
I think it gives you something, um, at least an honest assessment that you can share with your stakeholders about your ability to be productive and where you're at with the project. I actually like the idea that you can fail an iteration. I kind of liken it. It's just a kind of a loop. It's a feedback loop. Like mm-hmm. when you're first, when you're programming, you, you actually fail a lot more when you're learning. Uh, you know, so if, if you're failing, maybe. 70% of your iterations, you know, that's a good sign that you're learning because, <laughs> and, and you have to include not just the developers, but also the stakeholders. So, you know, why did that iteration fail? Well, there was multiple, the whole team has to think about that. Was it the stakeholders that, you know, didn't scope the work well enough? Did they, did they, and the, did they put too much scope into that iteration? Was it the developers or what? whatever it was? A lot of times I think that uh, the stakeholders aren't judged enough on that criteria too, and they can fail the iteration uh, more often than even the developers. So I, I think it's just like inserting a loop. And what's interesting too about iterations is, and when you talk about sprints, there are versions of agile that happen in a day. If you want to break it down that way and think about the principles, if you're trying to get a prototype out, for example, one day of work, you know, there's, you could have iterations and five to 10 minute cycles and get that feedback loop going and like, okay, so we're, we're not just sitting here brainstorming for an hour, we're brainstorming for five minutes. And then we're doing this thing for five minutes. And we're doing this thing for five minutes. I actually think it's interesting to think about it that way. Because, you know, I, I do a lot. I also do a lot. Not only do I program, I also do a lot of content work. And I've been using agile to get myself in the creative process, get myself out of this like mode of being so perfect about what I'm doing. And just saying, I need to ship something in this period of time. It's not going to be perfect, but I'm going to learn something. Yeah. Nice. Anything to add, Tom? No, I like that. Yeah. I, I mean, Tom and I, we've, we've worked together, you know, a long time and we were always experimenting with the duration of our iterations. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of the, I, I, we've, I've done the one day iterations. I think that's cool when you're in POC mode. When Tom and I were working close together, I think our the team we were running kind of settled in on a one week iteration, which I think is you know just makes sense for the business needs we had at the time. Um, you know, in the past you've heard of month iterations; those are way too long. Too many things can go way wrong in a month. Two weeks, I think, if you have a efficient, mature delivery team that can stay on course, sure, two weeks, but. Anything beyond two weeks, I would really question how how you're making it work. But uh, yeah, so those are iterations and um, great, great feedback there. So kind of wrapping it up here, uh, last topic is going back to the Iron Cross and what we know about our iterations. Like how do we actually know when to turn the dials and what are the right dials to turn? We've touched on a few of them. You know, so again, the four dials are quality, time, cost, and scope. So, I mean, usually if you've ever been in the engineering seat, the first thing you want to change is the schedule. Like, you know, you know, two weeks into the project, like we're not going to deliver this by, by the end of the year. Right. So we need to let our stakeholders know right away. And stakeholders are going to say there, I mean, there's probably very valid business reasons why something needs to ship on a date, right? Maybe there's a promise to a customer. Maybe there's a trade show. Maybe the competitors are, you know, beating you to market. So like, I think from an engineering side, if I kind of recall, I was always like, yeah, just push the date, right? Like, you know, what's the big deal? Like you want it to be perfect, right? As engineers, we're perfectionists. So you, you want it full feature set, 
you want it to be best in class. Um, with that said, you, you, I know Tom wants to chime in and say, you got to get stuff out there as soon as possible, but it's just, it's very challenging to, to just say, change the date. So for me, it's, uh, kind of going back to the iterations, you, you want to make the iterations as small as possible, right? You want to make the changes that you're introducing into any application program, anything, any change, right? You want to make it as small as possible so you can measure it. No, this is you know, the value that's coming off of it and, and everything like that. That being said, it's the smallest that you can. So then, it, you know, it depends on on what that is. And then I like to think too, there's, it's iterations of iterations, right? You want to introduce change as small as you can, but that could be part of a larger sprint or epics as uh, some people call them or initiatives or, or yeah. different things like that. So yeah, you, you want to introduce... The smallest changes you can, but yes, that could be part of different, you know, cascading hierarchy of, of iterations. I'll yeah. Think. You get it out there behind a feature flag as soon as possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of part of it. So I, it's funny. I, I, I want to like the word quality is interesting to me. I, I think of this as from the perspective of what you're delivering. So if it's something where you haven't found product market fit yet, that's your relentless pursuit as a team. That is, that's the only thing you have to think about is how do we get product market fit? Because we're not making money right now. We don't, we haven't found exactly that, that, you know, thing that we're looking for to, to, to get somebody to pay us some money. Now, if you already have product market fit, the quality is something different. It's something, you know, you have to measure other things, but, but at the end of the day, you're wanting to create something as small as possible to deliver the biggest impact as far as measuring, did I improve my end customer user experience? Did I did I meet the the thing that I was trying, the goal that I was trying to accomplish? And so, yeah, I think you can control the other levers by time with with iterations, uh, time with iterations, scope with your stakeholder team being relentless and trying to figure out what that smallest change is, and then cost is. I, I think it's kind of can be constrained if you're using iterations at that point. And then you, all you have to think about is, okay, how are we, what is that smallest change? How the stakeholder team works with developers to to figure that out. Yeah. I'll circle back to all those things you just said. It, you got something, Tom? Yeah, I got I to gotta go off quality because uh, the everyone, you know, you think quality, right? How good is it? But I, I was listening to something, I think it was uh, Seth Godin, uh, one of his either books or podcasts or something and how you define quality is the uh, adherence to the specification, right? And that way you can, you can measure it where value is, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to do this. It's going to be like this. And then quality is how close you come to that specification, right? How far you, you deviate off of it. And that, I don't know, just gave me the perspective to, to, understand it better and think about it and how I'm doing that. Yeah, I don't know if that helps anybody else out, but yeah, quality is that definition of, uh, you know, how much it deviates from, from spec, right? The, the actual thing. Yeah. And the research for the show, the quality, particularly of the code was the setting that you want to keep your code quality high. Now, what that means is subjective, but, uh, you know, cause qual so sacrificing code quality for speed is a false economy, but I think it touched on what you said, Lance, like you can adjust the quality of a feature or the user interface, right? Like you might, you might have to create a simple 
HTML interface, but you know down the road if this if this is a quality fit for the market, you're going to want to make it dynamic and add drag and drop features. Like, but you know you can. So there's these there's these nuances of quality that I think we just really sliced and diced, which is a really interesting piece of this conversation. The best things you can do for your customers as a stakeholder and your team is to figure out what not to do. Mm-hmm. I love I love to go through a backlog and just start. <laughs> we talked on this one, but I want to talk about every knob. So we've talked about the date. We talked about quality. Let's talk about you know increasing budget or staff. And it's a pretty seems like a straightforward solution, but it's not. You know, adding manpower theoretically speeds up the process, but it leads to that initial productivity drop. So as a ma- as a manager of the project, you have to you have to be able to weigh out the pros and cons of that bet. I haven't really seen too many scenarios where there's budget to just, you know, randomly add a handful of developers. I'm I'm sure there are in bigger companies. I've I've mostly worked for smaller SaaS startups, but never was really an option. And the idea of bringing in a new person with no context of what we've been developing for the last 10 years, just always, you know, you know, there's going to be a big dip in productivity. So it's usually not like a viable option, um, but it probably depends on the structure of the organization and, you know, the capability of the engineering talent you're bringing into the team. Wasn't there in, in the book, The Mythical Man Month, wasn't there something about the exponential nature of communication too or something, which is why that breaks down so quickly? Yeah. You kind of start the team size, you know, can dictate the complexity of the communication. And yeah, I don't know. I've never read that book, but I know I I'm familiar with the concept you're referencing. Um, so that leads us to scope. Did you have something on that? On the conference? yeah, yeah, I like to think of it. So, you, the, the scope of the work, right? That a team can do, it shouldn't really change how versus how many people are on there. Um, you you want to keep it like the the two pizza team or whatever, right? The kind of smaller is better. If you want to increase more and add more people to do more work, there has to be another it has to be another team, right? That And that uh, what they have to work on has to be broken out, right? That that value that they're contributing. So yeah, you can add more, but just, you know, arbitrarily to a team, yeah, I, I don't agree with. The, the way to do it, to add more people, is you have to break apart that, you know, what you're working on, that specification, either coming down from another team or, you know, being uh, contracted out down to, you know, an internal team, hey, can you work on this for us? Uh, yeah, it has to be clear the the clear boundaries, the you know the communication, what they're responsible for. That's how you you increase that right? the amount that can be done, um, not just adding more that that's already there. And lastly, we've got the scope knob, which uh, based on the research I did for the show, it's like this is the knob, right? This is the one that you know can keep your project on track in terms of delivering, and it can help you to you know, just turn the project into something feasible that can be delivered at a specific time. Engaging the stakeholders in this conversation is key. You know, as soon as you start talking about stripping away features, they're going to throw up their arms and say, we got to have this, this, and this, it's not going to work. But of course, you know, if we, if we look back to our velocity charts and our burn down, if we have trust in that data, we can say, okay, well, we, we either have to push the date or we have to scale some of the things back. And there has to be that back and forth. And decisions on, you know, 
what we need for initial launch and then what we can add after launch. You know, there's, there's all these conversations that should be happening very early in the project. And I think that, you know, to me, that was, I think something I knew, but just kind of putting it all together for this podcast makes a lot of sense. And, you know, negotiating the trade-offs. And I think one thing that stuck out is like, you want to make sure you're, if you, if you are doing feature scope and, and removing some stuff, you want to make sure you're never putting in stuff that's not important to the stakeholders. Like there might be stuff that's easy that we can just, oh, we can get this done in an iteration, but it might not be the piece of the feature or deliverable that matters the most, right? So you get, you still have, you have to find that balance too. Like you never want to report out on an iteration to a stakeholder and say, well, we got this piece done. And they, and they say, well, that piece is really isn't important. What we really need is this piece, right? Like you, so you, before you commit to doing something in, in scoping, you know, scaling back the scope, like try to avoid doing work that's not important to the feet, to the deliverable, you know, to begin with. Cause that, I mean, that's just a huge, uh, a huge, uh, um, heartbreaking scenario and, you know, good, bad for team morale. Threads is a really good example of this in implementation of scope. So Threads is this new social networking app that's competing with Twitter and People don't realize how hard it is to actually release an app to 100 million users versus, uh, you know, really quickly versus just putting up a web app um, that can serve, you know, maybe a couple thousand. Um, but they did it. They accomplished it. And they scope creep. They scope hammered a ton. Um, they didn't have an edit button. They didn't have the ability to do GIFs. It was the most basic, you know, why would anyone use threads if, you know, Twitter had all so much more functionality than they did, but they did and they loved it. And it was more about fostering the community in interesting ways than the actual functionality of the application. But they were, they kept iterating and they kept adding these features and now they have an edit button. Now they have GIFs, but they didn't start that way. It's mm -hmm. really interesting. How are you liking threads? I love it. Yeah. I love it. So I only know what X is, so I don't know. Twitter, what are you talking about? I never used X. <laughs> okay guys uh that's all i got for today any anything uh you want to you know just uh tie a bow on before we before i wrap it up here and the next journey into agile will be to like you know we're going into an iteration how do we you know what are the challenges of actually planning an iteration and you know the actual pointing our work it's kind of getting more into the weeds uh we'll see tbd but cool. that's kind of where my thought is we're sprinting we're sprinting yeah. live you know something that is that's on my mind as I was working on this podcast was just like the whole institution of like scrum masters and agile masters and this whole agile industrial complex is my new buzzword. And it's just like, I've seen some things on LinkedIn where it's like, Oh, well, this company, you know, got rid of all of their scrum masters and, and, you know, agile leads. And it's just like, it just, it's, it's always weird to me that like these, these industries develop out of, a framework and then you have people who who have never written code and I'm not trying to judge them for never written code but like they're they're responsible for the agile or scrum process within an organization but have have no concept of what it actually takes to do the work I just, it, it just seems like it's a recipe for failure it's kind of like I don't know or if they've never written code at least have empathy like understand what it takes you know 
I know some people that don't write code, but they've tried and they should understand that it takes time to get stuff out. Yeah. You know, so maybe that's a conversation for another day about, you know, the, and it, it, you can apply this to anything. Like everything has a cert now, everything has a, right. You know, everything, everything starts with pure intentions and then becomes like a certified industry. <laughs> mm. It's just, uh, yeah. So PCI anyway. compliance, SOC. I so I'll take this time to uh, thank all of our listeners for tuning in to today's Lunch with Tech Leaders. We hope you found the conversation informative and valuable. Uh, I'd love to have you join us again for our next episode. We're we're going to discuss. I should know this. We got a, we got a little holiday break, so oh uh, yeah, we got we got time off. I think we're kick, getting back to it in uh, early January. I think it's you, Lance. You're going to be talking about uh, the. Um, Assistance? Custom assistance. Yeah. yeah. That's what's on the docket. Chat GPT custom assistance. Right. I will be, I'll make a point to continue my exploration of those. So I'm prepared to talk. Looking forward to that. Uh, you know, it's been a great year, guys. Thanks for, you know, doing all these shows with me. It's uh, been fun. Yeah. We've got yeah. a lot of good, interesting episodes coming up next year. We're going to keep, keep things rolling. We're going to hit our hundredth episode. And uh, Jalen's got a huge, huge surprise for that uh, TBD, and uh, I'll leave it at that. So have a great holidays. I'll talk to you guys later.